You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, Episode 101. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there, my name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Prepare yourself, because you're in for a real treat. Welcome to the first part of my interview with my personal voice acting mentor, the amazing Richard Horvitz. Richard has voiced some of the most iconic characters in animation, including Daggett in The Angry Beavers, Zim from Invader Zim, and Billy in The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy. Not only is Richard an accomplished voice actor, but he's also an amazing teacher. When I first arrived in Los Angeles back in 2001, I was in desperate need of a competent voice acting coach to get me up to speed in this competitive market. Even though I had extensive theatrical acting experience and had gotten my voice acting start in New York City, moving to L.A. meant taking my skills to a higher level. I was overwhelmed and a bit intimidated by the world of Hollywood voice acting, and I wasn't sure how best to gain momentum or achieve success. Fortunately, I was introduced to Richard, and I immediately recognized how insightful his coaching was. I studied with Richard regularly in the early part of my Los Angeles career, and I'm deeply indebted to him for his generosity, his candor, and his encouragement. Richard's coaching was my secret weapon for gaining a solid foothold as a voice actor in L.A., and I'm so happy to be able to share his wisdom with you. Before we get started, I should let you know that Richard's enthusiasm is infectious. And because of that, we ended up talking for far longer than I usually do with my interview subjects. That means you'll be getting some extra long episodes in this series of interview sections. I can't think of a better way to introduce my new monthly podcast release schedule than to provide my listeners with some bonus content. So I hope you enjoy the extra time as much as I did. And now, without further ado, here's Richard. And now, the feature segment. Well, hello, Richard, and thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast. Oh. It's fabulous to have you here. It's my pleasure. It's fabulous to be had. Yes, isn't it, though? Yes. Especially, <laughs> yes, we all love being had. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is a very special episode uh, for my listeners. <laughs> I don't know. Anytime uh, it's a very special episode, yeah. it's like a very special different strokes. Yes, exactly. Arnold is inappropriately <laughs> touched in the law, you know, sort of things like that. Um, but... I because I wanted to share with my listeners my personal mentor for voice acting, oh, who is you. You're um, very kind. You uh, really helped me when I first came to Los Angeles, uh, even though I had extensive acting experience in theater and whatnot. I had all sorts of misconceptions about how to approach uh, voice I acting remember and whatnot. That. And, and you really helped uh, sort of shake all that loose. Right. I remember um, that. It's I Am Superman. Yes, I am. Have you shared that uh, story with 
your listeners the, we, about, about how we practice the I am Superman exercise and then you were cast as Superman in a game, right? Yes, in Justice League yeah. Heroes. In Justice League Heroes, see? <laughs> it's not a coincidence. No, it was not a coincidence. What are the chances? 100%. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but before we get into that stuff, I would like uh, to just talk a little bit about uh, how you got started as an actor, as a voice actor, just so my audience can get to know you a little better. Well, I started acting um, as a child actor. I started um, doing commercials. I got my SAG card in 1978, so oh. I'm coming up on 40 years. I should be talking like this. I'm, I'm coming. I'm currently celebrating 40 years in show business. Um, but I started as a child actor. I started in commercials, and the first big thing that set me on the path to acting uh, was I was cast in a in Oliver at uh, the Aquarius Theater here in Hollywood, California. It's now the Nickelodeon Theater on Sunset. Mm -hmm. And it starred Shaney Wallace, who played Nancy in the the 1968 Academy Award-winning musical movie, Oliver. Mm -hmm. And it was also Dick Sean and Stubby Kay. And if your listeners know Stubby Kay, and I know a lot of our fans mutually are huge musical theater yeah. Uh, buffs. And that's my passion is musical theater. Yeah. Um, so I started acting in that in 1978. And um, Dick Sean, Stubby K, for your listeners, was nicely, nicely in the movie uh, Guys and Dolls back in the uh, mm-hmm. 40s with Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, yeah. Um, so from there, I started doing um, television guest spots on TV through the 70s and 80s. And around the nineteen mid eighties, I kind of hit my stride in teen films. I did a lot of uh, on camera work. I did a film called Summer School, where I played a nerd, Alan Eakin, which was a stretch. Um, <laughs> and I did another one called How I Got Into College. And interesting, interestingly enough, Tom Kenny and I are both in um, How I Got Into College. Yet mm-hmm. we never met because we never shot on the same day. Oh right, so it was just funny. Years later, we would become friends, but. Um, <laughs> Um, so from there, around 1989 or so, 88 or 89, mm-hmm. um, voiceover was introduced to me. There was a Writers Guild strike on, and someone said to me, have you ever considered doing voiceover? I knew nothing about voiceover. It's like it was a foreign concept to me. Yeah. And so I was also on my on-camera auditions getting a lot of, he doesn't look like he sounds. Mm. And that... Didn't used to bother me, but it used, it started coming down to between me and someone else. And my voice was always a hindrance because I had, I have a high pitched voice. It's unique. It doesn't really fit my look. Everyone expects based on my look that I'll sound like Bruce Springsteen or something because I just have kind of a different look than what comes out of me, the sound that comes out of me. So I looked at it as a negative in the beginning and I started taking voice acting so I could talk like this. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Uh, blah, 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 blah. But it just felt fake. It felt really inauthentic. Yeah. And uh, so then someone suggested voiceover. And at the time, I had a commercial agent uh, named Susan Nathy, CPC and Associates, and she shared an office with an agent uh, who had opened her own agency by the name of Sandy Schnarr. Mm-hmm. I walked over to Sandy, and I said, I'd like to do voiceover. And she goes, well, you need to do a demo reel. Back then, it was a reel-to-reel uh, Quarter-inch tape. tape. Quarter-inch <laughs> tape. And I made one, and uh, the first three things I did was I did uh, I booked immediately. I booked three commercial voiceovers. Mm-hmm. I was always the kid. My very first voiceover ever, although I did record an album when I was a kid, but that's a whole different story. My very first job was I had two lines. I had one line, actually. Bye, Dad. That was it. 
And I said, Sandy, is that it? That's all I get to say? And she goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You get paid the same as the person who has the no, monologues or whatever. So, okay, I can do this. And I thought, okay, I'm really good at this. And uh, those three jobs, I literally went to my, I literally said to myself, wow, at the time it was like $185 per spot per cycle, which meant 13 weeks. And I thought, well, if I can do eight of these a day, five days a week, I mean, that's how naive I was. Yeah. I'll be rolling in bank by the, you know, by the end of the month. Yeah. Those three jobs were the last three voiceover jobs I did that year. Um, it's so naive. And it, and it literally took me uh, probably four to five years to actually break into animation. Wow. But I knew that I was going to do animation because that's, I love the concept. I love the idea of getting a new script every week. I love the idea of working with other actors and basically doing a stage play every week or, mm-hmm. a, or a, a script reading. Um, but uh, it took me five years to break in animation. And at the time, everyone was saying that thing we always hear. There are only eight people or ten people doing all of animation. Doing yeah. all of animation. It just so happens that my decision to go into animation coincided with the fact that something called cable blew up. And so suddenly there were all these opportunities that hadn't been there before. Yeah. Like when I was growing up, it was three networks and that was it. Yeah. It was Scooby-Doo, you know, and that wasn't a network, although some of them could be called the Scooby-Doo network. But I mean, that was all, you know, there wasn't as much animation. Yeah. I also have a theory about that, and I, I, I talk about this, is that I chose not to believe that, that there were only 10 people doing everything. I just yeah. didn't believe it. I, I felt there's room for everyone, and I still believe that there's room for everyone we have more people in voiceover now than we've ever had in the past. Mm-hmm. And yet the people who are doing animation from the beginning are still continuing to work. Mm-hmm. So I, I really believe there's room for everyone. Um, but my theory is, is that it wasn't that there were only eight or ten actors doing it all. It was that there were only two or three casting people doing all the casting for oh. So the idea is if I'm going to, you know... Um, if I'm going to call Crispin's agent and I'm going to book him for uh, the show I'm doing in the morning, um, well, I also have the afternoon session I have to do. And I already have Crispin and I know he can do it. I can count on him. So I'll just put him on both sessions. Mm. And that's what I really believe was the case back then. Gotcha. So when you were at Sandy's and, mm-hmm. and you did those commercials, she was also getting you audition for animation stuff as well? She was. You know, agents... Agencies usually book you for your commercial reads or take you on, sign you for your commercial reads before animation because they can get you working faster and there's, making money. Right, there's so many more commercials there's in the production. commercials being cast every single day, yeah. you know? And so that's how I always tell like my students or people I'm advising in voiceover, start with a commercial demo because you can get an agent and then when you get in the agent's office, say, I also do animation. Can I also get animation copy as well? Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with me. So you started with a commercial demo with Sandy, but not right. an animation demo. Right. I, I didn't even know how to go about doing an animation demo <laughs> at the time. And to be honest with you, I was kind of an anomaly in that, in that uh, respect because when I started doing voiceover, you know, hitting my stride, it was during the Gen X movement where everything was like, Gen X, the cool guy sound. We're no longer going to be about, hey, I'm the announcer. I'm Gary Owens. It, it was about... Being real and talking to the audience, the beginning of this looking for real, natural, conversational type read. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
that's what I started on was commercials because it was I, you could get I could get work as a young sounding voice very quickly, mm-hmm. and that's what I did. It's very interesting you talk about the fact that you didn't look like your voice mm-hmm. because I had a similar challenge because I always looked very young, but the voice that came out of me was this deep was far more resonant mm-hmm. and and. Um, mature and many times proper sounding. They always wanted me to sound like Dawson's Creek. Right. And I always sounded like Hamlet. And they didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, And and it worked fine when I was in the theater and I was doing Mm -hmm. classical theater. Everything works fine in the theater. That is why it is my go-to place still. I'm doing a play right now or I'm in rehearsals for a play right now. Theater is still my passion. It is still my love. It is still my drive um, because of that. Mm-hmm. We in theater has a tendency to celebrate people's uniqueness. Oh yeah. Um, they want they. No one has ever in theater said anything about my voice. Right. But on camera, I get it all the time. Yeah, because there are certain expectations of how things should sound, and they're very concerned about marketing to yeah. certain audiences. I had a friend. Uh, I, I I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. Uh, this story, but he had been cast in all of Gary Marshall's movies. Okay. And he was a character actor. He was strongly a character actor. And just to help my audience, Gary Marshall movies like? Gary Marshall's like Pretty Woman. Okay. Uh, Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Gary Marshall was the executive producer uh, of Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley in, the, in its stride, you know, all those years. Gotcha. The Odd Couple. So you know Gary Marshall. He's Penny Marshall's brother, and he talks like this. So I had a friend who was, Gary loved him. Continues to love him, put him in all his movies. Mm-hmm. And one day my friend decided, you know what? I don't want to be the shticky guy. I don't want to be the, the guy that comes in and do, does bits. I want to, I want to have a real role. I want to have something I can sink my teeth in. I want to be the leading man. I want to be this. Yeah. So it was during the movie Runaway Bride. Okay. That Gary offered my friend this part that was the comedic relief part, but he wanted to be one of the grooms that runs away from Julia Roberts. Right. And Gary said to him, It's not Hollywood reality. You know who they want for that part? John Bon Jovi. Are you John Bon Jovi? (laughs) And that was, that that was the, that's a true lesson right then and there. And you either accept that or you don't. But for me, I thought to myself, I can look at this constantly not being cast because they say my voice is funny, or I can look at it as, Hey, I've got a unique voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me. Have you heard the Jerry Lewis album where he tries to be Dean Martin? No, I love to hear that. Unbelievable! Abdullah Because the the best of the outtakes at the end of the album, where Jerry Lewis is trying to sing, you know, very serious Dean Martin, and he'll mess something up, and the guy will come over the talk book, Jerry, you messed it up, and I go, hello, lady. Like he'll drop right back, <laughs> back into, into his shtick and the orchestra will follow him. The orchestra yep. will start hamming it up and go with him. When the moon hits her, I like a hey lady. Hey, like, Big pizza pie, that's that's it. To, to hear this guy fighting against his natural archetype right. and right. go, just be Jerry Lewis, dude. Mm-hmm. You don't have to try to be Dean Martin because Dean Martin can't do what you can do. This is something that I teach all the time is that um, people don't want to accept that this is who I am. They don't want to own this. And when you own it, that's what, that's, when you know your wheelhouse, you will continue to 
work and book over and over again. Mm-hmm. But we always tell ourselves we have to be something other than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that I went through this whole period of my acting career where I felt I had to be like Pacino or De Niro or the people that I idolized growing up. Right. And so, you know, I started doing more serious things and really wanted to do it, but it just always felt inauthentic for me. It's not that yeah. I couldn't do it. It's that my want, which is what I talk about when I teach, is what was my want? Well, my want was to be a different character, not to disappear into a pretend make-believe world. Right. And I remember that one time, Joanne Worley, for your listeners who don't know Joanne, Joanne Worley um, was on Laughing, and she was the one that used to go, boring! You know, she, you, everyone would know her <laughs> if she saw her. She came up to me, and I had watched her growing up on TV, and she said to me after a play she had seen me, and she said, honey, you're funny. Why don't you just be funny? My perception just shifted. Yeah. Like right that moment was just a, it was like a, it's a millimeter of a shift. I went, yeah. Why not just be funny? Why not just be funny? The Superman, right? Uh-huh. When you were, when we were working together and you said, when you say you're Superman, you just do it. You don't think about it self-consciously. You don't ask your friends you're playing Superman with whether you did it well or not. You just play Superman and, and you don't, and you don't think about it. Yeah. And I went in to audition for that Justice League game, and I had this wrong idea of who I was. Right. I thought I was Martian Manhunter, because I Mm -hmm. had this idea that that's who I wanted to be. Right. right? The problem is Martian Manhunter is always played by a very large black man. And it had nothing to do with the story you were in. Exactly. Like, this is not, this is not right. So I got in there, and I tried to do my best Martian Man, and it's always played by Kevin Michael Richardson, or (laughs) Keith David. Like, there's no, I have no chance. Kevin Michael Richardson, yep. Right. Like, there's no chance that I'm going to be able to play this character. And (laughs) sure enough, the director was like, hmm. Not so much. I still know how I got the call back. But that's when she said, you know what? You're not Martian Manhunter. Why don't you read for Superman? Yeah. And I went, okay, fine. Because I didn't have any... Um, Preconceived notion. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I have my own take on Superman. Right. But I didn't like... You know, I wasn't in fear of playing... You know, I'll never play Superman correctly. Or he said... No, I said, no, this is what I think Superman is. And I just did it. And they're like, you're Superman. I was like, what? what? And, and that was that millimeter shift where I went, oh, yeah. I'm not that guy. I'm this guy. Okay, I'm cool with that. And, you know, I, I think it, it, it uh, warrants some uh, explanation of it for your listeners. And, and I talk about this all the time. Um, I have a saying that I, I got from my mentor, Diana Castle, who I always credit for the way I think because she, she changed my life when it came to acting. Um, she teaches something called the imagined life. And I recommend Diana Castle like, all the time, because I'm, I'm one of her biggest fans. Does she still teach? She still she teaches, and you can look her up on www.imaginedlife.com. Okay. And she would say, um, the voice does the work of the spirit. Meaning, it's not a religious statement, it means just that. You People think to do animation, I have to have a hundred different voices. But I don't believe that, because I don't. You always know mm-hmm. it's me in all my roles. But then again, you always know that... Pacino is Pacino, Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep, you know, Adam Sandler is Adam Sandler, and you still follow them into your story. Mm-hmm. So that said to me, oh, the story is what I pay homage to. Nothing is more important to me than the story. Mm-hmm. Not the voice, not the characterization, the story. So that's where I start. But with the Superman thing, the voice does the work of the spirit. When you were a kid and you would play Superman, you wouldn't go, freeze Lex Luthor, I'm Superman. You would go, freeze Lex Luthor, I'm Superman. And you wouldn't think about what voice 
you would use. Nope. It would just come out because you were playing in that make-believe world. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens. You do voices all the time that you don't really plan. When you talk to a baby or a child and it's a little baby, you go, who's the cute little baby? Yeah. You don't go, hmm, should I do that voice or should I use, <laughs> hello, little baby? You know, you don't do that. You just, it just comes out. Yeah. Um, but, but likewise, something that Diana taught me and I subsequently taught you was, when you're playing in a make-believe world, make-believe game, like when you were a kid, let's let's do this exercise, you and I, right now, like we used to. Okay. Give me an idea of a make-believe situation you used to play. Did you play Star Wars, House, I what? Absolutely played Star Wars. Great. Who were you in Star Wars? Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker. Give me an example of something you might have said as Luke Skywalker. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, I love this part when he was in the the turret in the yeah. Millennium Falcon and yeah. they were leaving the Death Star and he's shooting and he turns and goes, I got him, I got him. Good. Now, you would play with your siblings, I'm gathering, or friends came over. Who would you play with this make-believe? Yeah, sometimes I'd play with my brother. Good. So at the end of this make-believe time, your mom would say, okay, Crispin, you guys come in and wash up. Now it's time for dinner. At the end of that play pretend time, did you ever say to your brother, let me ask you something. When I said, I got him, I got him, did you believe me? Or should I have gone, I got him, I got him, I got him. Right? You never did that. <laughs> right. And your brother wasn't sitting there critiquing your performance as Luke Skywalker. And you weren't critiquing your performance as Luke Skywalker. You were just playing. Yes. You are playing in a make-believe situation. Yeah. That's all we do. Yeah. That's all we do. People try to overthink it. Yeah. That's the problem. They, they, yeah, they try to overthink it because they're trying to anticipate what they think they are, look, the they's are, the are, they's looking, for. are looking for. And that is what I call um, acting the breakdown. <laughs> Drives me nuts. People try to be the character in, instead of trying to exist in a make-believe world. Yeah. So they try to act the, the breakdown. I, I give this example all the time. You'll get this breakdown that'll say... He is frequently kind and suddenly cruel, generous to a fault, yet stingy beyond belief. He's happy, yet morose. And it'll be three and a half pages of, of breakdown of yeah. specs. And then they give you a paragraph. Right. And I say this to my students all the time. They give you this paragraph. So this is how I handle that about people, you know, breaking people the habit of trying to act the breakdown. Yeah. If I said to you, are you, have you been happy in your life? Yes. Have you been sad in your life? Yes. Have you been angry in your life? Yep. Have you been loving in your life? Yeah. Have you been nurturing in your life? Yep. Have you been giving in your life? Yeah. Are you showing all of those things to me right now in this moment? Yeah, I'd explode. You would explode. So the answer is no, right? <laughs> so then if that's all they give you is that paragraph, mm -hmm. why do you feel the need to do all the things it says in that breakdown in that one paragraph? When yeah. they give you another part of the story where those other characteristics come out, those other personality traits come out, then they'll come out. But if you try to act the breakdown, you'll get exactly what you just did for a take, which is... Yeah. And, on, and on tape or on digital format, this is what it sounds like. It's like so <laughs> all up here, as they say. Yeah, um, right, because you're not, you're not playing pretend. Mm -hmm. Um, you're trying to anticipate other people's reactions, reactions, mm -hmm. which is chasing your own tail. There's just, you'll yeah. spiral down into madness. Exactly. Um, like the five steps that I teach in my classes, the very first step is the I am. Mm -hmm. And on a very simple note, I am the person in the story. It's not he, she, it, they, them, her. I am Luke Skywalker. Yeah.
I think that was probably uh, and and the idea that you um, helped me understand it wasn't just I am, but I am enough. Yes, which is the ellipses after the I am. I am enough because I am a human being. As Diana Castle used to say to me and everyone she taught, uh, people don't respond to your don't re- are not responding to your invulnerability. They're responding to your vulnerability yeah. because we can relate to that. Oh, I felt like that. I've been in that place. I'm glad it's him that's going through that and not me as we're sitting there, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I, people want to nail the part. But it's, it's funny because, I, I mean, I had, I've had other teachers say that to me as well, where um, especially when I was doing very physical types of theater, mm-hmm. they would say, you are up there going through this, right. this experience, traumatic or joyful, whatever it is, it's a physical experience that you're going through. And the audience is going, oh my God, thank God he's going through it or she's going through it. I'll pay them money because they're playing pretend so physically. Exactly. And that's the thing. Exactly what you just said. They pay the money. You know, people want to use substitution. It's, it's, I never fault anyone for their processes. If they want to be a method actor or they want to be a, um, uh, a Meisner actor. That's their way of getting to where they need to go. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in it because I don't think it's necessary because as human beings, um, we are reactive. So if I'm five foot six and I'm going to take on a guy that's six foot five, mm-hmm. before I do it, I'm not going to say to myself, I'm going to kick your ass because I have a Napoleon complex. <laughs> right? Right. So that's what we try to give ourselves so that we can motivate ourselves to play. But I'm not paying $250 on Broadway to see you thinking about the day your dog died or your grandfather died uh, when you're supposed to be crying because your lover is leaving you and you can't be alone. Yeah, that that notion of sense memory. The idea is I'll just resuscitate an old memory and that will produce the emotional response that people will find believable. But that well, takes you out of your story. It takes it. you out of the yeah. story because yeah. while you may have a believable emotional response, it's not appropriate for this story because maybe the sto- in the story you're angry with your father, but the memory is being angry at your mother, and it's not going to line it's not up. Not going right. to work. And people do this in commercial takes all the time. They substitute some other things so they can have a feeling about it. Yeah. The thing is, is that the reason I I believe, and I've proven time and time again, that people can't cry when they're supposed to cry is because their want becomes crying. Right. And so inherent in that I hope I can cry is the inability to cry. Yeah. As opposed to I want I don't want this person to leave me. That's the story. If that's what the story is, I don't want this person to leave me. And if I'm thinking about that and I'm listening and I'm present, I'm going to cry. But that's the other trap that people fall into is uh he grieves. That's a stage direction. He grieves. Yeah. People automatically assume that means you're supposed to cry. Yeah. But if you're really present and you have a, a, a strong sense of self, if you know yourself, grieving doesn't necessarily mean the same to all people. When I grieve, I get angry or jokey. That's what I get. I get jokey, but it's a scary, edgy jokey because what? He's not dead. Come on. What are you talking about? Because I go right to anger. I don't yeah. go to grief, crying, denial, and all that stuff. That's my go-to. But as, as my mentor said, it's very important for people to remember that you can't act angry. You can only know what makes you angry. You can't act sad. You can only know what makes you sad. In knowing that, you trust your own instincts and response to just respond to how you would respond. 
if this were happening to you on the playground right now. And that is why the first step is the I am. That I am has to be in check. I am enough because I am a human being. Yes, saying that I am a human being and I am enough, and in that notion of you can't play sad, it's because sad is this sort of, well, it's, it's an adjective, and you can only really play a verb. And so the idea is, is if, if you're playing pretend, then you're imagining this entire scope of the situation that will elicit believable responses from you. But if you try to just get the result, that, that it's like trying to put icing and there's no cake. Like, right. There's, it's the result orientation that is, is, is people's biggest enemy, is yeah. the result oriented. Hey, I said that joke, you should laugh there. But then you go in for an audition <laughs> and they're not laughing. Yeah. And you're like, oh, crap. And what, what happens to your sense of self? Your I am goes right out the window because it's like, uh-oh, I'm going to have to try harder. When people, what I always tell people when they want to get into animation, I say to them, do you believe, and the answer is yes, undoubtedly 99% of the time, do you believe that in animation you have to do something so far outside yourself to be interesting, to be viable in this market? Most people say yes. I said yes, and I would. Th- I thought that even before I got into animation, I just assumed that in theater, they didn't want to see me. They wanted to see the character. They wanted to see this construction that I made right. that was not necessarily connected to who to me being there. Right, right. Um, and it's you know it doesn't matter what medium we talk about. If you talk about film, stage, commercial, uh, I teach the the same thing I teach for commercial reads uh, are the same thing I teach uh, for animation reads. I'll give you a perfect example. There's a, I hand out a Baskin Robbins ice cream spot. And it's only two sentences. The sentences are, in, indulge in $2 soft serve mini parfaits only at Baskin Robbins. Okay? That's mm-hmm. the whole line. Indulge in $2 soft serve mini parfaits only at Baskin Robbins. And I have people come up and I read. And the first question I ask all of them is, who are you talking to? And they'll go, oh, I'm talking to the audience. Mm. And you're talking out. So what's the story? And they go, what do you mean, what's the story? Well, I ask you to give me three takes, because that's what we do in commercial. Give us three takes. And we give you three takes in a row, and most people just change their, infl- their inflections. Mm-hmm. Indulge in $2 soft-serve mini parfaits, only at Baskin Robbins. Indulge in $2 soft-serve mini parfaits, only at Baskin Robbins. Indulge in $2 soft serve mini parfaits only at Baskin Robbins. Well, that's great. That's three different takes. But what's the story on each one of those? Yeah. People say, what do you mean? I said, look at how deep you could go into these two sent- this one sentence. Mm-hmm. You start with the word indulge. And I ask them, who are you talking to? So I'll do this with you. You tell me, based on this, who you would be talking to. The first word you use is indulge. You mm-hmm. don't say try. You don't say how about. You don't say, do you want? Mm -hmm. You say, indulge. Mm -hmm. What is the definition of indulge to you? To me, to indulge is to um, experience something with a sense of, um, uh, I don't want to say extremeness. It could be extremeness. There's a a luxuriation. There's a luxuriation. There's something you are giving yourself that you don't normally give yourself. Yes. You are allowing yourself a guilty pleasure. Yes. It's some, it could be something naughty. It could be something out of your price range. Yeah. Which gives us another take, by the way. We'll get to it in a minute. Right. But you say indulge in $2 soft serve mini parfaits. Here's what people take for granted. 
because we're constructing an entire story here. I'm telling someone who I don't know yet, because mm. I haven't figured out who I'm talking to, to indulge in something. And then I think to myself, what kind of parfaits are they? They're mini parfaits. Mm-hmm. Mini parfaits, that means they're smaller. Mm-hmm. They're not as big as a large one. It doesn't have as much yogurt and fruit and all that and whipped cream. Mm-hmm. They're mini. So who would I be talking to to say, indulge in a mini? Who would you talk to that would, you would be trying to get someone to try? Not because they're a large one, because they're small. They're less calories. Well, I would probably, I mean, the first thing that leaps to my mind is my wife. Who because, might be on a diet? And also because usually servings are just too big. It's, okay. it's like, it's just too much Great. for her. And she'd, she'd rather have something that's small and really perfect than something Great. that's huge and not very good. Great. So you could say your wife, I could just say a person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be anything that personal for me sure. to play. But for me, be, I would be telling someone on a diet, mm-hmm. a man or a woman, mm-hmm. that is watching their calories that I could easily go indulge in $2 soft serve mini parfaits only at Baskin Robbins. Mm-hmm. Now, people say to me all the time, how do I get a real natural conversational read? Mm-hmm. And I say the same thing to them. When you walked in here and asked me that question, did you first think to yourself, how do I make this sound real, natural, <laughs> conversational? No, you just spoke. Yeah. In order to be, sound conversational, you have to have someone to have a conversation, conversation with. with. If you, and the other thing is I said, this, this Baskin Robbins take, the character is announcer. And I always say to this, the person that I'm coaching, what's the name of the announcer? And they'll always go, uh, John, uh, Sam. Sebastian. Sebastian. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but <clears throat> that's not your name. Yeah. The announcer's name is Crispin. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. <laughs> the announcer's name is Crispin. Yeah. But people just think, oh, no, I have to create something outside of myself. Yeah. That's a long way around. It is a long way around. It's the, it's the constant. I've actually short-circuited some of my students when I tell them uh, I need a voice sample from them to help cast them during ca- class. And I'll say, just use your natural voice. And they oh, go, yeah. what? Throws them all. And I'm like, no, just you, if you can't act with your natural voice, you have no chance of being able to put on the sauce of different accents or different other things. It's the dingo ate my baby. That's what I call it in my I class. I remember that teach. lesson. Um, Everyone, we now joke about Meryl Streep and a dingo ate my baby. We all, we've made fun of it. We've parodied it time and time again. But the fact of the matter is, is that you weren't laughing when she said it in the movie. And the thing is, is that Meryl Streep didn't start rehearsing with the Australian accent. She broke down the story. You don't understand. I didn't kill my child. We were camping. You found the bloody pajamas. I didn't kill my child. You have to understand a dingo ate my baby. Now, she was, a dingo ate my baby. And they went, great, you're right there, Meryl. Now let's do the accent. You don't understand a dingo ate my baby. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The words are never as important as the situation you are in. Mm-hmm. Most people practice how they say the words. Mm-hmm. Those of us that do this over and over again, time and time again, we practice the situations. Mm-hmm. The words are just grunts we put to the situation because right. we've made the situation real. I always tell the Morgan Freeman story, which is there are 10 actors and they're all in a producer's callback and they all have the same thing to say, I want that water. So one by one, these actors, uh, they go into the room for the producer and they say, I want that water. And the producer says, yeah, okay, I believe him. Next. 
I want that water. Yeah, okay, believe me, he wants the water. Next, two, three, four, nine actors come in. I want that water. Great. A tenth actor comes in, and his name is Morgan Freeman, and he says, I want that water. And the producer looks up and drops the noodle out of his mouth because he was eating lunch during your take and says, that's him. That's my I want the water guy. Mm -hmm. And so I always ask people, why did Morgan Freeman book that job over the other nine actors? And the answer is never, even though inevitably it's always somebody's answer. It's never because he's Morgan Freeman or he really wanted the water. That's when someone tries to think they're talking my language, language and they're not. He really <laughs> wanted the water. And I always go, what does that mean? <clears throat> the answer is, is because those other nine actors took their copy, which I call story, and they looked at it and they held it in their hands and they went, I want that water. I want that water. I want that water. I want that water. <laughs> Morgan Freeman took his sides and he looked at it and he went, I want that water. And he laid it down and he went, hmm, why do I want that water? Is that water for me or is it that everything I've ever had has been taken away? And if I can get it back, I can, I can get my strength back. And so now he's made it real for himself in his imagination. He, doesn't, he goes into that room and he doesn't have to recreate anything a la method acting. He knows why he's talking. Mm-hmm. I want that water. That's all he has to say. And that is the thrust of what I teach people day in and day out. When you know, and I wrote that, I made this up, and I wish I had made this up when I knew you, but this is like years of calming what I teach and trying to sum it up. Mm -hmm. When you know why you say what you say, then you're informed and it allows you to play. It's always the mark of a good teacher when they can express their insights in such a concise and powerful manner. When you know why you say what you say, then you're informed and it allows you to play. That phrase has so much wisdom packed inside of it, and yet it is simple enough to remember even under the most stressful of acting circumstances. One of my favorite aspects of working with Richard is his commitment to play. Too often the business of voice acting can become disheartening. After all, there is a lot to organize and keep track of if you're truly running your voice acting career as a business. Such practical demands on your time and focus can make you forget why you wanted to be a voice actor in the first place. To play. At the heart of almost all of the best performances in any acting medium is a sense of playfulness. Even if the character or the story is deadly serious, the actors themselves are often thoroughly enjoying playing pretend as those serious characters. Without a playful attitude, your dream job can turn into drudgery. If you do your best to remember that voice acting is a continuous string of opportunities to play pretend, each opportunity can become more specific and fascinating than the last. Apply this attitude to all aspects of your voice acting career, and your enthusiasm will resonate through everything you do. Another thing I love about Richard's teaching is that it is supremely practical. Richard uses simple, real-world examples to teach others how straightforward the acting process can be. In fact, that's exactly what he does in the next part of our interview. In Part 2, Richard shares with us his specific five-step process for approaching any type of acting. He also shares some personal challenges he's faced while pursuing his own acting career. 
He goes on to show how those initially disheartening experiences helped him realize that his five-step process isn't just a technique to improve one's acting, but it's also a way to understand oneself. The more you comprehend your own psyche and the more honest you can be with yourself, the better prepared you will be to play pretend fully as a character. Richard explains all of this in detail in part two of our conversation. I hope you're enjoying the interview so far, and I look forward to sharing more. Until then, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors, and I'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.